Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States, and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon, Mormon Discussion, discussion and, and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for this chance to be with you today. Looking forward to this conversation. Today, we're going to dissect Elder Jeffrey R. Holland's address to the Maxwell Institute late in 2018. This was, it's nothing short of a call to repentance to the Maxwell Institute. And I found it interesting uh, some of the psychological mechanisms that Elder Holland uses and thought it would be fun if we dove into this. Just a quick announcement before we start. Uh, we would like to encourage listeners to set up recurring donations. This podcast survives on the financial support of its listeners. Please consider going to Mormon discussions.org or mormondiscussionpodcast.org and uh, clicking the donate button. Become a recurring uh, donator today. Also, just a heads up, uh, in the past we've done a premium subscription where you could get premium content, episodes released early. At present, we are not doing that. Uh, we've got a few issues behind the scenes with how that uh, app works. And uh, so at this point, we are getting your donations, but they are not connecting you to a premium subscription. And so we don't have any episodes that are being released early at present. We hope to resolve that. But to do so, we need somebody who deeply loves and supports the mission of Mormon Discussion, who has some IT background to reach out to us and be willing to spend maybe 10 or 15 hours uh, fixing uh, some of these uh, technical issues that we're having. Uh, unfortunately, I am very limited in my computer skill, and I am uh, the person behind the scenes taking care of the small stuff, uh, and that becomes uh, a little difficult. So looking for some help, hopefully somebody out there is willing to do that. Let's jump into it. Uh, so this was an address that Elder Holland gave late in 2018 to the Maxwell Institute specifically. Uh, again, deeply believe it's a call to repentance of them. Uh, and I think you're going to agree once you listen through this. But let's begin. Uh, Spencer Fluman uh, has just turned the time over to Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles uh, in the Mormon Church. Thank you, Spencer, very much. We, uh, we claim Spencer in our household, and I'm uh, grateful for what he's doing, and I'm grateful for the hospitality tonight. I, uh, I'm actually uh, 
a, a little uh, startled when I look at you and think of this tonight and uh, have a sort of a chilling uh, feeling that you may be, I don't know whether you are or not, but you may be like the sophomore who uh, charged into class, first lecture of the semester, barely got in his seat, and the uh, professor said, uh, well, get ready, because today uh, we're going to talk about a kid who came home from college and found that his uncle had murdered his dad and married his mother, and he, in distress, fell in love with a girl who inadvertently murdered her dad, and then she went crazy and drowned herself, and you retreated, he retreated to talk to ghosts and speak to a human skull that he named and thought about his own suicide. <laughs> well, the kid no sooner sat down than he got back up and he says, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm, I, I got enough problems of my own. I came to hear a lecture on Elizabethan literature. Uh, I, I am not sure what you came to hear tonight, uh, but I hope there's something in it uh, for everybody. I, I fear that the chill I have is that with the title, perhaps you anticipated a wonderful cruise through the 21st century countryside with no less a narrator than Elder Neal A. Maxwell with all his alliterative skill. Um, actually, that's not what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about the bus that we have in for a lube and an oil job so that you can enjoy that trip uh, even more. I hope uh, when I'm through, there will have been a little bit in this uh, for everybody and uh, that you will be rewarded for your wonderful, wonderful, thoughtful participation and hospitality tonight. Needless to say, uh, I'm more than honored, Pat with me, uh, to be back on this campus and to address you tonight for any reason on any subject. Uh, I love you. I love this university. I love Elder Neal A. Maxwell. His impact on my professional life has been immense. Uh, but in recent years, it's his apostolic life that I revere so much, and I think that will be evident in what I have chosen to say tonight and maybe how I've chosen to say it. I started preparing on this with Professor Fluman's kind invitation really months ago. I started preparing for this talk in a pretty standard way uh, that you might on a university with a, a religious heritage and an academic mission. I was reflecting on the collective duty to learn even by study and by faith, the very phrase that, that Elder Brother Fluman used, and, and then noting that the Lord has always required the heart and a willing mind. I read a sheaf of educational materials, staggering amount. I wanted to reflect and remember and renew. A lot of them Elder Maxwell's, but a lot of others. And I mused over some of the issues we wrestled with when I was here at the university a few years ago. I even recalled dim 
distant memories of my graduate work in fields not completely foreign to elements of the Maxwell Institute. But it was soon clear to me that these were not the matters I was to pursue. And that was a, an interesting experience and uh, something of a wrestle before the Lord, as Enos said. What I realized uh, eventually is that while so many of the issues in academia had not changed much, all the things that I'd gone back to reflect about, I had changed. And so, with the humility incumbent upon anyone making such an assertion, I come tonight in my true identity as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask for your prayers in making me equal to that responsibility, because that is a greater responsibility than to simply come and give a, uh, an academic message per se. So simply a note here that he comes in his true identity as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is making a temple reference here, uh, which, by the way, remember that uh, our leaders have told us in the recent temple changes that we are not to talk about the things of the temple outside of the temple. Again, the only things we're really not allowed to talk about are those things that are problematic to our truth claims and those things that are embarrassing along with the tokens and signs. So making this reference is not a problem at all. Notice too, by saying I have come as an apostle, he is setting a tone. This isn't about just me having a conversation with you. This is about me as one of the special witnesses of Jesus Christ coming to speak to you as a representative of the Savior of the world. As I begin, I offer four caveats, brief as they are. First, although I accept sole responsibility for all inadequacies, limitations, errors, missed opportunities in this message, I'm here not only with the blessing, but also the rather explicit expectation of the officers of the university's board, whose executive committee I chair. In that sense, I speak for all of our governing advisors, uh, not just for myself. Who are the advisors? Who is the board? Well, it's the top leadership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, including President of the Church, Elder Russell M. Nelson, who is, stands at the head of that board. Elder Holland isn't speaking on just his behalf as an apostle, a special witness of Jesus Christ. He also comes under the direction of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. The second, because this lecture series is established as a tribute to Elder Maxwell, I've drawn heavily on his views of our challenges and our opportunities. Dealing with the limits of time, I've not been able to use much of the magnificent material available from the pen or the pulpit of other church leaders. I've read so much of that again recently, but haven't been able to use it in the time we have. Fortunately, Elder Maxwell's voice and teachings represent those other leaders wonderfully, wonderfully well. There will be another reference later, but notice he invokes Elder Maxwell's name, meaning, look, we've named you as a organization after the very name of a past member of the Quorum of the Twelve. Hence, your organization on some level represents his name. And so I will use Elder Maxwell's quotes, 
in order to show you what it is that he represents, i.e. what you should represent. Third, I'm speaking really specifically to the Maxwell Institute tonight and not to the whole of BYU's academic effort, but I hope that much of what I say will apply not only across the campus, but, uh, but beyond and out into the church. Last, I come with love, appreciation, admiration, applause for every good thing you have ever done collectively here. Everything you're now doing, and as our title suggests, yet will do to seek the truth, build the faith, illuminate the majesty of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. For so much good being done by so many for so long, and who yet want to do more, I say thank you for the gift of your heart, might, mind, and strength. One could hardly give more. May I also offer a line or two of tribute to our honoree. And I am conscious that we're here with the wonderful Maxwell family whom I love dearly, individually and collectively. I first heard of Neil Maxwell, or more properly read of him, in June of 1971. My source was the church news, an unerring link at that time between New Haven, Connecticut and the Great Basin West. He had just been appointed commissioner of the church's educational system, and I was very impressed. Several years later, that's the very picture that I saw in the paper, several years later with my dissertation moving along and decisions arising such as, after this degree what, I called Elder Maxwell for advice. As I look back on it, it was a silly, embarrassing thing to do. Some insipid graduate student that Brother Maxwell had never met asking via a telephone call what he should be when he grew up. <laughs> but Commissioner Maxwell could not have been more gracious in his manner nor more generous with his time. That phone call started a professional, then a personal, and then an apostolic friendship that will continue warmly and wonderfully forever. Suffice it to say that second only to some very profound experiences in prayer in New Haven, the fact that I would pursue a teaching career in the institute program of the church, clearly the least exciting and least Ivy League-like choice available to me, was due in large measure to that and subsequent conversations with Neil A. Maxwell. My life since then continues to have his fingerprints all over it. I take precious time to mention this personal relationship with Elder Maxwell for a reason. It is to say what Professor Fluman just said, very clearly and at the outset, that I too care very much about the man we honor in this lecture series. I care about his name, about the life he lived, the legacy he left, and the legacy that will run on into the 21st century and beyond. In great measure, the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship will, for good or ill, be the means of communicating much of that legacy to an ever younger, ever newer generation in the church who never heard Elder Maxwell's voice, 
nor delighted in his prose, nor felt the fire of his faith. Again, Neil A. Maxwell Institute, you represent the good name of Elder Neil A. Maxwell, and as you're about to hear, also the Lord Jesus Christ. But more important than Neil's gifts and legacy are the gifts of the Savior of the world he loved, who stands above and behind the apostles and his church, including their work in the field of education. Brothers and sisters, we're at a moment in this church, his church, the Savior's church, when there is a demonstrable, near-tangible hastening of the work. These continue to be the latter days, with no one knowing when that last, last day is going to be. Nevertheless, we know the undeviating trajectory toward it began 198 years ago in a grove of trees near Palmyra, New York. Continuing revelation to prophets, seers, and revelators since that first great theophany to the prophet Joseph has stimulated significant developments down through the years, including in the present day. There will be more. On his recent trip through South America, President Russell M. Nelson said, and I quote, Your witnesses to the process of restoration. If you think the church has been fully restored, you're just seeing the beginning. There is much more to come. Wait till next year. And then the next year, eat your vitamin pills. Get your rest. It's going to be exciting. I'm not an apocalyptic person, and none of us should sit around waiting for extraterrestrial rapture. But we do stand unequivocally with those angelic beings in Acts 1 who said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. In what the ordinances and the scriptures call that day of the Lord Jesus Christ, I imagine not only the dramatic universal appearance of his light coming out of the east and his descent upon two Jerusalems, but I also imagine a more personal encounter, a solitary Christ standing at a solitary door, making a solitary knock. Whose door is this? To what chamber does it lead? I've always assumed it was the door of a home. Mine and yours and everyone's. Perhaps it's more figuratively the door to each human heart. Tonight, I ask that we make it the door of the Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at Brigham Young University and the academic world it hopes to influence. And what's the invitation? If any scholar hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him or her and will sup with him and he with me. The question for the Institute is the question eventually for all of us, all humankind. How do we best and most warmly open that door, personally and professionally, and on what do we sup when the master is admitted? Will our time and conversation in the Maxwell Institute be consistent in every way with his gospel, his grace, his life, his loving, persistent plea to come follow me. 
Here he opens up early on asking if the Maxwell Institute is focused on those things that represent the Savior and his gospel most effectively. He is essentially pointing a finger at the Maxwell Institute and saying, you haven't done the best things with the time and resources that you have, at least not the things that we think are the best. Because now comes the time where he starts to ask them to redirect themselves towards those things that he, in the leadership of the church, see as a better fit for the utilization of their time and resources. You're probably thinking that this opening is a bit melodramatic for the purposes of this gathering, referencing the first vision, priesthood ordinances, the advent of the king, the significance of end times generally. I prefer to see it as apostolic. These are the topics that absorb 15 of us who toss and turn when we'd like to sleep and slumber. In that spirit, my friends, I can think of few other entities on this campus that have received the attention from the general officers of the church that the Maxwell Institute has, at least lately. So you might think this melodramatic. You might think I'm over the top. But these are the kinds of things that the top 15 of the church lie awake at night when they'd prefer to sleep. And that the Maxwell Institute has been at the forefront of their discussions and their worries and their concerns when they'd rather be sleeping. I offer my non-campus-wide, non-Marriott Center appearance in this modest venue as evidence of that attention tonight. The Lord's prophet who chairs your board and his fellow apostles who sit with him sent me to you. We hope it is affirming for you to have that strong, active interest in you at a time when the direction and the priorities of the church are being discussed as almost never before, at least certainly not as ever before in my lifetime of service. I hope you don't mind that I'm here because of these concerns. I hope you don't mind that we are discussing you guys behind the scenes. I hope you don't mind that I'm here today under the direction of the President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to discuss with you your utilization of your time and resources. We hope you welcome that focused attention, that uh, you are as measured for your role in these developments. Can you blame us uh, for such eager interest? There are very few institutions, agencies, departments, functions, activities in this big, wonderful church that are looked to as representing its values and reflecting its virtues more than is Brigham Young University and the work that goes on here. BYU is an asset to be envied by every educational sponsor in this world, certainly by any other church sponsoring a university in this world. This university was a life changer for me. Maybe it is or was for you. 
I say there's nothing like it anywhere. Of course, the missions of the church and the mission of BYU are not identical, but their missions certainly can never ever be at odds with each other. And in the case of the Maxwell Institute, they must come as close together as an ecclesiastical sponsor and an academic recipient of that sponsorship can be. While you are certainly going to do different things, what you guys do can never be at odds with what we do as the leadership of the church. So, if the university is to reflect the best the church has to offer by way of a world-class academic endeavor, no apologies to anyone, then the Neil A. Maxwell Institute must see itself as at least among the best the university has to offer as a faithful, rich, rewarding center of faith-promoting gospel scholarship enlivened by remarkable disciple scholars. Of our commitment to seek learning generally, Elder Maxwell said, there is as much vastness in the theology of the Restoration as in the stretching universe. There is space there for the full intellectual stretching of any serious disciple. There is room enough and to spare for all the behavioral development one is willing to undertake. But in the search for truth, not all truths are of equal importance. And in using the disciple-scholar metaphor, that hyphenated noun Elder Maxwell left us as part of his marvelous linguistic legacy, the spiritual half of that union was always the more important, and you know that. Though I have spoken of the disciple-scholar, he said, in the end, all the hyphenated words come off. In the end, we're finally disciples, men and women of Christ. But the wonderful thing with Neil, and the thing I want for us, is that it didn't have to come down to a choice between intellect and spirit. In a consecrated soul, and consecration was one of his favorite doctrinal concepts, in a consecrated soul, they would be aligned beautifully, a perfect fit, a precise overlay. But if it did come down to a choice, it would be faith, the yearning, burning commitment of the soul that would always matter most in the end. There should never be an issue with a consecrated soul. Consecrated to what? Consecrated to their covenants. Consecrated to Christ. Consecrated, loyal to the leadership of the church. When I hear him use the phrase consecrated soul, he is speaking of one who is loyal to the leadership of the church. To one who's loyal to the leadership of the church, there never need be any indecisiveness. And if there is, one would fall on the side of faith and loyalty. Regarding that faith-filled scholarship of which Elder Maxwell speaks, may I note plainly one thing, the one thing we expect you, among other things, to do that is central to your raison d'etre. It is to undergird and inform the pledge Elder Maxwell made when he said of uncontested criticism, no more slam dunks. We ask you, as part of a larger game plan, 
to always keep a scholarly hand fully in the face of those who oppose us. As a ne'er-do-well athlete of yesteryear, I was always told, you play offense for the crowd, you play defense for the coach. Your coaches will be very happy to have you play both superbly well. So I think here's an important moment. This sports reference to playing offense and defense. You play offense for the crowd, you play defense for the coach, but these coaches, the leadership of the church, would like you to play offense and defense. Defense is to defend the principles and history of the church. But what is offense in this analogy? And it, one has to come to the conclusion, I think, that offense is to push back against the critics, even to attack them, perhaps, if need be. Elder Holland here is giving permission to the Maxwell Institute to go on the offensive. About four years ago, at the university's invitation, three outside scholars reviewed the circumstances the Institute was then facing and wrote 19 pages of observations. Some of what they said addressed the matter of apologetics broadly defined. Whatever else they had in mind, I thought it a marvelous understatement for them to have said, there will be times when our faith will require an explicit defense. We want the Maxwell Institute and many others to contribute to that defense with solid, reputable scholarship, intended as much for everyday garden variety Latter-day Saints who want their faith bolstered, at least as much as might be intended for disinterested academic colleagues across the country, whose stated purpose will never be to prove or disprove the truth claims of the church. Elder Holland here seems to be saying, look, the world at large, they're never going to be happy one way or the other having like the truth claims of the church defended. But those, those who look from the inside of the church to the Maxwell Institute are looking to have their faith bolstered. That is who you should be giving your attention to not trying to appease the scholars outside the church as they will never be happy. Whichever audience we address at any given moment, I note the advice of the review team who challenged the Institute to, quote, promulgate a clear statement of its commitment to engage in work that builds the kingdom, to set the agenda according to their own objectives and not those of the academy, and to ensure that the dominant tone of their journals and books affirm core LDS values as outlined in the foundational documents of BYU. Obviously, that agenda spoken of must always include work done on the foundational documents of the kingdom as well, the Restoration Scriptures and especially the Book of Mormon. It may have been in this regard that the reviewers said the current culture at Maxwell Institute may have lost some of the Institute's founding vision and original purpose. Did you hear that? The reviewers of the Maxwell Institute deemed that it may have lost some of its vision and purpose. Its job is to bolster faith. Its job is not to agree with the critics. Its job is not to take 
the side of scholarship if that scholarship hurts faith. And the reviewers of the Maxwell Institute have deemed that it may have lost some of its founding vision and original purpose. It may have been in this regard that the reviewers said the current culture at Maxwell Institute may have lost some of the Institute's founding vision and original purpose. Ouch! Ouch! Blair Hodges! Ouch! Spencer Fluman! Ouch! So as somebody who tries to be open and honest about the messiness of Mormonism and who admires those at the Maxwell Institute who have increased what I believe is the integrity of the work they do, Elder Holland just slapped you in the face and said the leadership of the church and those who review the Maxwell Institute are fearful that you have lost your founding vision and your original purpose. Wow. It may have been in this regard that the reviewers said the current culture at Maxwell Institute may have lost some of the Institute's founding vision and original purpose. And now come some of the solutions. Let's turn the time back over to Special Witness of Jesus Christ and also known habitual liar, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland. Now, as I quickly step from one landmine to another, let, let me say something about what was heretofore called Mormon studies at BYU. Obviously, you're going to have to find another name <laughs> for that part of your endeavor. Take heart, take heart. We're going through the same exercise at church headquarters addressing a whole host of adjustments that are necessary in our own departments, our own printed materials, public communications. We know this assignment will give you heartburn, but it doesn't rank with the Missouri persecution, so dive in. Uh, <laughs> to his counselors and to, the use, to us in the Quorum of the Twelve, President Russell M. Nelson said of this matter, while acknowledging we have no control over what other people may call us, we cannot call ourselves by any other than the name the Lord has prescribed. To the degree that we tolerate our own use of Mormon or Mormonism, he continued, we'll be held accountable for this error in nomenclature. To a public audience just weeks ago, he said, the name of the church is not negotiable. So, dear friends, when coming from our own tongues, the use of Mormonism is anathema, and so is Mormon if it pertains to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as a title per se. President Nelson understands fully that renaming Mormon studies is a concern. He wrote to me, was concerned enough to write to me uh, an email uh, and said, and I quote, part of the challenge at the Maxwell Institute will it be its identity, never more obvious than in the subset titled Mormon Studies. Is this an institute for studies of the Book of Mormon or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the restoration of the gospel? We need to help. We need to help them know who they are and why they exist. He continued, I truly believe that if they can claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ some way in their name, the Lord will bless them 
in their mission, close quote. It's a very private email, but he gave me permission to share it. I'm sitting here and I'm thinking like, wow, so there's a little bit of a public rebuke going on here. I mean, couldn't the leadership of the church have sat down with Spencer Fluman and others from the Maxwell Institute and said like, hey, privately, behind closed doors, we're having a hard time with some of the things you're doing. My guess is that's already happened. And it's because nothing has changed that now Elder Holland feels a need to essentially embarrass them publicly. He had just criticized that reviewers thought they had lost their founding vision and original purpose, and then he leads immediately into a joke where the audience laughs. So while some members of the audience really aren't paying close attention to what's being said, I don't think for a second Elder Holland is unaware that this laugh immediately following his rebuke of the Maxwell Institute in very direct ways is going to cause those who understand his words to feel embarrassment. Then we go into immediately the first change he's suggesting, which is to change the name of Mormon studies. They've been resistant to doing that. So what does he do? He shares with them an email from president and proposed prophet, seer, and revelator, Russell M. Nelson, who suggests to Elder Holland that we need to help them see the importance and to make the change. And that the name change should move to something that contains the name of Jesus Christ, and the church's full name. If I'm Dan Peterson, I am smiling ear to ear as this conversation is being had. But Elder Holland, at this point, for those who know what he is speaking about and what it is he is saying, they are feeling a deep amount of embarrassment. Having dealt with at least that elephant in the room an elephant now lying in an ungainly heap in the middle of the floor. <laughs> it's up to you marvelous folks to figure out how to get it out of the house. <laughs> we will be praying for you. <laughs> right after using the same equipment at church headquarters. <laughs> we'll loan you the front end loader that you may need to wrestle with this. Again, just after he rebukes the Maxwell Institute for not quickly enough changing the name, he gets the rest of the audience to laugh. Again, adding humiliation and embarrassment to those members of the Maxwell Institute who knows, who understand, who comprehend that he's talking directly to them. You haven't changed the name. It's an elephant lying in a heap in a room. It's your job to move it. It's your responsibility, Maxwell Institute, to understand that this change has to happen and you have to make it and you get to decide what the new name is. But it's our responsibility to put our thumbs down on you and impose that you change it and tell you what guidelines it needs to be changed under. But as with all such challenges in gospel life, I see the requirement to adjust our name as being a blessing not in disguise. A unique name, somehow, reflecting language given by the Savior himself, will be one way of sending a signal that we are different 
sometimes a lot different out here in Provo, Utah. Of necessity, we will often be a peculiar people in the academy as well as in other arenas of life. In the spirit of full disclosure, you should know that initially I was against any proposal to do at BYU what was called Mormon Studies elsewhere because I knew what Mormon Studies elsewhere generally meant in the public eye. However, over time, I see the merit in a Latter-day Saint Studies effort at BYU if you are willing to make it significantly different from the present national pattern. Let me tell you, I've never been a fan of what we're doing here. I've watched Mormon studies be initiated in other places, and I don't like the direction it's going in. So I'm not a fan of it here, but now I see that if we can do it, if, notice the if he added, if we can do it in a way that does not follow the pattern that it is done everywhere else, then perhaps it has some value. In fact, if you do it the way we want you to do it, we will see it as having lots of value. But only if you stay away from the pattern of how it's been done in other places. If you're willing to be truly unique, I can endorse the idea that BYU should have a hand on any academic tiller dealing with the church, becoming a place to which other such programs and chairs and lectureships might look for leadership. If, as is often the case, some journalist or researcher or interested layman wanted to know more about the church from an academic source, I would not want them to think of any other voice anywhere more readily than they would think of Brigham Young University. But that leadership role cannot be successfully played in an entirely traditional Mormon studies framework. I say this because Mormon studies programs, and I continue to use the word because we have it for now, these programs on other campuses are designed to be primarily academic ventures, not spiritual ones, which is perfectly understandable. Some of our member students enroll in those programs, and it may be a faith-promoting experience, but in great measure, these endeavors are oriented toward an audience not of our faith. So be it, and not necessarily for faith-building purposes. One such program proclaims that it, quote, does not promote or reject any particular religion, end quote. Another says it promotes understanding of the church without necessarily advancing or disputing the veracity of its faith claims, end of quote. One describes their work principally as engaging in Mormonism both as a significant cultural fact and as a research subject, close quote. They are, for the most part, a way for other people to look at us, making no particular call upon one's belief and having no particular covenantal consequence after the course is over or the essay is written or the seminar has ended. I understand all of that. These programs may indeed, yes, provide a thoughtful consideration of the Restoration's distinctive culture and convictions. Yes, it may 
offer the richness and intellectual substance and relevance to other religious traditions and its people's historic resilience. These do have value and undoubtedly lift the church out of the dismissed, unexamined space to which it has been relegated by so many for so long. Perhaps that is enough elsewhere, and we should leave it at that. But I would be the first to oppose such an effort on this campus if all it meant was a thoughtful exploration of our religion's richness or its intellectual substance or its historic resilience. That would be what your review team called a secular premise which Latter-day Saints will find philosophically troubling. Certainly, your trustees would find it troubling. Elder Holland here says, look, here's what it does everywhere else. It does it from a secular point of view. It's not done to uplift faith. It's done to explain Mormonism to non-members. And that's not what I would endorse here. He says, if you can do it our way, I'm in support. In other words, if you do not do it our way, I am not in support. And then again, he mentions the trustees, the top 15, and the reviewers of the Maxwell Institute, and here's what they said again. But I would be the first to oppose such an effort on this campus if all it meant was a thoughtful exploration of our religion's richness or its intellectual substance or its historic resilience. That would be what your review team called a secular premise which Latter-day Saints will find philosophically troubling. Certainly, your trustees would find it troubling. Elder Holland finds it troubling. The review team finds it troubling. And the trustees, I mean top leadership of the church, find it troubling. Now take a deep breath. Smile. I am not suggesting our BYU approach to scholarly dialogue has to start with slides of your mission uh, or end with an anthem from the Tabernacle Choir on Temple Square, notice the modified name. <laughs> and there you have it. This is the third time he has embarrassed them and pointed right at them with bold criticism and immediately followed it by getting the rest of the crowd to laugh, adding to the shame and embarrassment of those in the room who know what Elder Holland is saying. Now, maybe it's just a coincidence. Maybe it's unintentional. But Elder Holland's been to a good school and he's read some good books. He's no dodo. But any scholarly endeavor at BYU, and certainly anything coming under the rubric of the Maxwell Institute, must never principally be characterized by stowing one's faith in a locker while we have a great exchange with those not of our faith. Neil Maxwell phrased it this way, a few hold back a portion of themselves merely to please a particular gallery of peers. Some hold back by not appearing overly committed to the kingdom lest they incur the disapproval of particular peers who might disdain such consecration, and some just hold back, period. 
Bracketing your faith is what those in the field call it. Elder Holland here is talking about why people hold back from being forthright about their beliefs and their faith, why people hold back from sharing a deeply faith-promoting narrative. Now, let's get to the root of the issue, because it, with, from a leader's mouth, it's never going to be worded forthrightly. Here's the reality. The data is troubling. The problematic issues of the church are real. The church's history deeply bangs heads with the narrative that the church tells about itself. Issues like the first vision, the book of Abraham, race and the priesthood, the prophetic mantle, using uh, spiritual uh, experiences as a testimony. These things are troubling. They are problematic. The critic has the stronger argument. So why do people at the Maxwell Institute, for instance, shy away from diving deep into apologetics and, be, and being overly eager to share the church's narrative. It's because it doesn't hold up. It's because apologetics are piss poor. So people at the Maxwell Institute and in other places are moving away from apologetics. They're moving away from standing clearly with the church's own telling of its story. And Elder Holland is saying that won't do. This is not an entirely simple issue because bracketing a hostile or aggressively biased faith can be a protection against abuse. Nevertheless, as John Levinson wrote 25 years ago for his own significant Jewish reasons, bracketing one's faith has more limitations than virtues. Above all, it precludes sharing insights truly unique to one's faith, thereby missing the opportunity to, to enrich the other. In Levinson's mind, there's a difference between common ground and neutral ground. He feels that a position which studiously pursues strict neutrality by bracketing will miss the chance for genuine, even profound dialogue on matters of common interest. On this, I stand personally with Levinson and Stephen Prothrow, who's recently become a friend. Stephen said 15 years ago that bracketing one's personal faith, its truth claims, if you will, and moral judgments has cost scholars credibility with some readers because, as he says, no one knows exactly where those authors are coming from ideologically. Elder Holland says when you bracket your faith, when you bracket sharing your truth claims per se, and those were his words added in because that's what he means. When the members of the Maxwell Institute shy away from standing right with the church on its truth claims, nobody knows where you stand. In other words, Elder Holland saying, hey, Maxwell Institute, Hey, you guys, we are beginning to be deeply unclear on where you stand. We can't tell anymore. We're telling a story and you're not telling it with us. And so we're struggling to see if you're standing with us or against us. 
Elder Maxwell was more direct. He said we're not really learned if we exclude the body of divine data that the eternities place at our disposal through revelation and the prophets of God. He also said the highest education, therefore, includes salvational truths. Thus, the invitation to include in your scholarly backpack the body of divine data that the eternities have placed at our disposal. We are to use salvational truths whenever and wherever we can. We are to share the truth claims and principles of the gospel wherever we can insert them. And you, Maxwell Institute, are not doing a very good job of that. We should be talking about the gospel as if it is scholarship at every chance we get. You see, he uses the quote from Elder Maxwell to say, look, not only in your tool bag should you be talking about scholarship and scholarly studies, but you should see the truth claims of the church and the principles of the gospel as being equal to and the same as the scholarship you are sharing, and you should insert it every chance you get. Now, brothers and sisters and friends, one and all, and beyond this room and out onto the campus, wherever, we know that you want and are trying to get this right. Professor Fluman, whom I love as a son, phrased your intentions this way. He said, and I quote, the Maxwell Institute's mission is unique because though it is grounded in the most rigorous scholarly standards, it explicitly acknowledges a Latter-day Saint faith audience, identity, and commitment. Because we pursue scholarship as a dimension of discipleship, we offer a fundamentally different approach to the study of our own faith and the study of religion generally." Close quote. That seems wonderfully consistent with your external review team's counsel, those four years or so ago, that the Institute should create an environment where faith can be nurtured and the restoration defended, and all of this accomplished with the highest scholarly standards. Professor Fluman and all, if those marvelous characterizations rightly state the clear and indeflectible direction of the Maxwell Institute, your trustees will enthusiastically and devotedly support you and the university administration in following that course to great success. Spencer Fluman, who I love as a son, laid out the mission of the Maxwell Institute, and the way it is worded is beautiful. If you will operate that way, we will support you and be proud of you. But if you keep doing what you're doing, which does not represent what you just said, then we're going to have a problem here. I've already stressed why this makes you fundamentally different in the world of academic studies of the church. But that difference fires the imagination, frankly, for me. With the emergence of these programs on other campuses, what if we seized the opportunity, really seized it, 
to act more and be acted upon less. Could we not assert ourselves on the agenda and place there some topics on which we have a unique opportunity to contribute? Not neutral ground, but we hope maybe common ground or uncommon ground. For one very homely example, I remember from my own stillborn work studying American religious development that there was in early America a lot of interest in family life, in kinship, in colonial family lines back to England and Europe, efforts to understand any way they could those early Americans who were so devotedly on God's errand into the wilderness. Are we bold enough in a BYU-based program to go into the fray saying that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has something to contribute regarding ancestral lines, family heritage, family histories, personal histories, personal journals, especially women's journals, and so forth. Furthermore, what about introducing our academic friends to the idea that salvific work can be done for family members who are deceased? I insert that last line just to see if you're still listening. I know you can't hold a Mormon studies seminar at Berkeley on the beauty of the temple endowment, something someone not of our faith would not have experienced. But we could certainly stimulate a lot of response from virtually anyone with the suggesting that saving sacral ordinances can be efficaciously performed for one's kindred dead. And if such doctrinal topics are too problematic for them, what about simply the current interest in sacred space, generally? Might we have something to say to our colleagues that would let us elaborate on the significance of holy space in our history and in our thought? And we've only begun to mine the wonders of the Joseph Smith papers. How do we get those gems out to those not of our faith and get them out without compromising their unique Latter-day Saint characteristics? Positionality, I am told, is a catchy academic buzzword at the moment. I am simply inviting us to capitalize on our positionality, to share what we may take for granted, but which others might see as true jewels in the Latter-day Saint crown. I hasten to say that some of you are already doing this very thing and have done it for a long time and it is delightful to see. Two thoughts here. One is that there's this idea that we're not happy with what you're covering. So let us make some suggestions of things you could cover instead. The other thought here is this idea that what you are covering is not meeting these ideals that we're talking about. Like if you can't Talk about the things you are talking about and do it in a way that we're happy with, then maybe you could cover these other topics where you could more easily do it. Think about this for a moment. As the scholars at the Maxwell Institute are diving into certain subjects and certain approaches, the leadership of the church is saying, you're not doing that with a attitude of promoting faith to the degree that we want. So maybe you need to ignore and stop talking about those subjects 
And maybe you need to put your attention on other things that while maybe boring to you, maybe not interesting to you, would allow you to speak with a tone and articulation that's more faith promoting. Friends, what we're asking you to do is difficult. It is demanding. It is among the stiffest challenges we could give you. We know you can't be credible in every circle if you're seen as lacking scholarly substance and categorically defensive all the time. But neither can you afford to ever be perceived as failing to serve the larger faith-oriented purposes of this church. Elder Holland pounds the pulpit and raises his tone with just the slightest bit of anger and indignation and says, look, we know you cannot simply look like the silly apologist out there getting all defensive all the time and avoiding scholarship. But you also cannot, in no uncertain terms, you cannot be seen as working counter to the church. Friends, what we're asking you to do is difficult. It is demanding. It is among the stiffest challenges we could give you. We know you can't be credible in every circle if you're seen as lacking scholarly substance and categorically defensive all the time. But neither can you afford to ever be perceived as failing to serve the larger faith-oriented purposes of this church. And with that setup, Elder Holland now urges those of the Maxwell Institute, when there is a decision to be made between sharing true scholarship that hurts faith and steering clear of it in order to make space for faith, here's Elder Holland telling them what to do. All we can ask is that you pray and fast and strive and sweat to find your way through. And then if there be error, let it be on the side of your covenants and on the side of your faith convictions. I promise the board won't return in five years or ever and come down on you saying that you made a mistake in doing so. As your visiting reviewers said, to satisfy academic standards of excellence and appropriate tone on the one hand and to sustain and defend the kingdom on the other will be one of the Maxwell Institute's greatest challenges in the years to come. It will require constant vigilance and ongoing negotiation to find and keep that balance. Maxwell Institute, Spencer Fluman, Blair Hodges, others at the Maxwell Institute, what are you going to do? Because you have a difficult challenge to maintain integrity to the truth in the scholarship and at the same time show your loyalty and willingness to uphold 
the narrative and truth claims of the church. What a difficult situation you've been placed in. Maybe even one that's impossible. So either A, you're going to have to set your integrity aside a little bit and choose faith when there's a decision, as Elder Holland suggests, or you try as hard as you can to maintain both, though that seems really difficult even by the admittance of the review team, or, as you can see, you run the risk of being disbanded or having the church step in with some other repercussions. Boy, do I not envy you. One way to keep that balance, and I stress this, one way to keep that balance is to remember that the Maxwell Institute and its heretofore called Mormon Studies program can never be synonymous terms. The Maxwell Institute may include Mormon studies, albeit one determinedly unique in its nature, but the larger institute title cannot be simply an alternate designation for its subset program out to an essentially wider academic non-Latter-day Saint world. You cannot operate objectively, Maxwell Institute. He has taken that away from you. You are not allowed to operate in a place of objectiveness. You cannot operate in a place of letting the scholarship take you where it does. You cannot be seen as saying, look, these criticisms are valid. Here's the ground we try to hold. These answers work. This scholarship leads to this non-faith promoting place. You cannot do that. Not only that, but even the, so the Mormon studies program cannot be synonymous with the Maxwell Institute, but even on top of that, your Mormon studies program cannot be like anybody else's Mormon studies program. You must sacrifice your objectiveness. You must sacrifice your wanting to be unbiased as much as possible. You're wanting to be forthright and vulnerable and honest to the data. Maxwell Institute, you have been given your orders. And in this church, you are either with us or you are against us. No, as a crowd who invites others to study us, even as we study ourselves, and who speaks to the faithful every bit as much as to the detached, you'll have to be comfortable being oddballs in what you're going to speak to both groups. It will usually not be in the same documents, probably not with the same vocabulary, and seldom, I would guess, in the same venue. But both the believers and the merely curious need to be able to see you as a source for some of the answers to their questions, however different that source material may be. And yes, if after such a balancing act, theological warfare still comes, you'll have to be willing to take sides. You cannot be neutral. You have to take sides. We, the board, the reviewers, myself, 
We need to see you clearly taking sides. And if that means you need to sacrifice your integrity, then so be it. Because loyalty trumps everything. Whose side are you on, Maxwell Institute? Because at this point, the moment you go down the road of doing what he is calling you to do, you will go from a place of having gained a level of integrity over the last five or six years, over the last 10 years, as you've moved away from being defensive and avoiding the scholarship to becoming something with integrity as you have tried on some level to be more objective. But if you go this direction, Maxwell Institute, you become just another pawn in the church's hand and your integrity disappears and vanishes. To reassure those I have made uncomfortable, I quote my favorite Scottish pastor who had such an influence on C.S. Lewis's conversion to Christianity. Said George MacDonald, is every Christian expected to bear witness? And please read the gender equality into this. A man content to bear no witness to the truth is not of the kingdom of heaven. One who believes must bear witness. One who sees the truth must live witnessing to it. Is our life then a witnessing to the truth? Do we carry ourselves in the bank, on the farm, in the house or shop, in the study or chamber or workshop, or the academy, as the Lord would or as the Lord would not? Are we careful to be true? When contempt is cast on the truth, do we smile? Wronged in our presence, do we make no sign that we hold by it? I do not say, MacDonald goes on, that we're called upon to dispute and defend with logic and argument, but we are called upon to show that we're on the other side. The soul that loves the truth and tries to be true will know when to speak and when to be silent. But the true man or woman will never look as if they did not care. We are not bound to say all we think, but we are bound not to even look like what we do not think. We are not bound to always say what we think. Now that's true, but on some level, it's also permission to withhold data, to withhold facts, to withhold admittance that the critics have a stronger argument simply to show loyalty to the church. And then he says, but we cannot be seen as not caring, and we are bound to not give the appearance of that which we do not think. In other words, let me stop here for a moment. Elder Holland is saying, look, whose side are you guys on? Now, here's a call to be on our side. This is a call of repentance for you to clearly show you are on our side. And if you behave in a way that we cannot tell what side you are on, then we are left to feel and assume and act as if you are against us. I highlight the line about not being bound to say all you think, about knowing when to speak and when to be silent. 
If invited to speak to a medical convention, his physician peers, should he ever have time or inclination to do that, which he doesn't, President Nelson would obviously not say everything he might say in a general conference address. Those are two different audiences with two different purposes. In that spirit, we know that not every seminar you hold in the academic world will be a formal first lesson from Preach My Gospel, nor will every essay you produce be submitted to the ensign for the entire church to savor, more's the pity. But by definition, your work will be broad and creative, pursued for a variety of purposes and addressed to differing audiences. No, I echo McDonald's insistence that while we're not obligated to declare everything we believe at any given time in any one setting, we are also not to even look like what we do not believe. The soul that loves the truth and tries to be true will know when to speak and when to be silent. But the true man or woman will never look as if they did not care. Could he be any clearer? Maxwell Institute, when you speak to members of the church whose testimonies are based on the story we tell them, whose testimonies are based in the narrative we tell, you are not to tell those people the full story. You are not to reveal to them an acknowledgement of the problems. You are not to share with those in that venue, in those types of venues, that there are issues here unresolved. Your job when talking to members of the church is to uphold faith. When you go and talk to non-members, you can speak one way. But when you talk to members of the church, we expect you to speak another. Beloved, beloved colleagues, if we do our work well today, we can make things better for those who will come in troubled times ahead. Those prophesied times before that day when Christ himself will rule and reign. That eschatological moment against which I increasingly measure both my own personal worthiness and that of the church generally. In that regard, we all need to do what we can in the hour we've been given, acknowledging, as the later Nephi did, that these are our days. As Elder Maxwell once quoted J.R.R. Tolkien's Gandalf, it is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in us for the succor of those years wherein we are set, uprooting the evil in the fields that we know, so that those who live after may have clean earth to till. What weather they shall have is not ours to rule. That piece, ironically, it strikes me as from the return of the king. We in this room tonight are tilling cleaner earth because Elder Neil Maxwell and his earlier apostolic associates have tried to counter evil and error in every field in which they found it. Every field, that is, except for the narrative that Mormonism and its leaders tell. Some of the weather in which they worked 
was stormy indeed, fatal on more than one occasion. Some of the weather ahead will be equally so for our children. Thank you in advance for helping the saints of the 21st century navigate those gales successfully. Let me close. In tribute to Elder Maxwell, when this institute was created, President Dallin H. Oaks, former president of the university and currently first vice chairman of the BYU Board of Trustees said, this institute belongs to God. It must pursue an unconditional commitment to his cause without any obsessions or any cultivation of cheering constituencies. The work of the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship must be genuine and pervasive, as broad as the spiritual interests of the children of God, as faithful as eternal truth, and as bright as the light of truth that is in us. In speaking of such a great work, as broad and faithful and bright as President Oaks here declares, I have certainly not wanted, as Mormon once wrote to his son, to weigh thee down tonight. I have rather very much wanted Christ to lift us up to the majesty of the moment we are in, the real purpose of Mormon's letter to his son. I testify that Jesus is the Christ, the great cornerstone of this, his earthly kingdom in the making. I testify that he loves you for every good thing you have ever done to help in every way you're trying to help now. I also testify that from time to time he will patiently nudge all of us, giving course correction regarding anything that doesn't help. With his love and holy guidance, I know that you will be successful in your mission. With the clarion call of the disciple scholar's trumpet, giving an unequivocally certain sound. For that sound we pray and wait in the name of whose work this is, whose church this is, and whose witnesses you and I are at all times and in all things and in all places that we may be in. I testify of him, Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end of everything, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And there you have it. Elder Holland's call to repentance to the Maxwell Institute. And I can't see any other way to see that conversation than what I'm calling it. Again, I know that others among fair Mormon such as Dan Peterson, are likely grinning ear to ear. But now the ball is in the Maxwell Institute's court. They can either demonstrably show that they are on the church's side. Who's on the Lord's side? Who? And we'll find out whether the Maxwell Institute continues to have integrity and to grow in scholarship or whether it simply becomes what it used to be, which is an apologetic arm of the church. So long, good night, 
Only time will tell. This is Bill Real, signing off the air. See?